Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Church. It's so good to be here tonight, and I trust that you are well and that you are um, managing to cope with this crisis uh, as it unfolds. And we pray that, that we would all be blessed this evening as we, we come in this way to hear the word of God and to pray and to gather as best we can as a church, even though we can't meet physically together. So my name's Ben, and I'm going to be leading us tonight, and I hope that you find this useful and helpful. If you're new to church and don't understand some of what's going on, um, don't worry, that's quite normal. But feel free to contact us on the, the, um, the, the um, email address provided or on our website, and if you've got any questions or comments, we'll be, we'll be very happy to talk to you about them and discuss anything that comes to mind as a result of this sermon, or this service, or anything else that happens. I wanted to talk tonight a bit about God's grace to us. Grace is central to the Christian understanding of God. Grace is undeserved favour. It's when somebody does something for you which you don't deserve. There's a story recorded for us in the Bible from the life of Jesus about a woman who had lived a sinful life in a particular town. And one day she came to Jesus when he was in, in, you know, in somebody's house having dinner and she knelt down and she, she wept and she washed, washed his feet with her tears and she poured some expensive perfume on his feet. And you can read that in Luke chapter 7. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7. Yep, 7. And some of the people in the house criticized Jesus and said, well, if this man were really a, a prophet, a righteous man, he would know that this woman is a sinner. And Jesus very graciously deals with these people who look down on this woman and he, he spoke these words. And let me read from Luke 7, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. He tells this story about two men who owe money. One of them owes a huge amount of money, and one of them owes just a little bit of money. And the, the man to whom the money was owed forgave both of them the debt. And Jesus said, who do you think will love him more? And of course, the answer is the one that had the bigger, bigger debt forgiven. And this story really spoke to me because... Jesus makes it clear, if you've been forgiven much, if you've sinned a lot and you're, you're aware of your sin, you know you've broken God's holy commands, it's no barrier to you if you repent and come to him, having a relationship with God, and in fact actually puts you in a good place because you know just how much you've been forgiven. You know, you understand what grace is. How could God treat me with such favour. But he does, because he's gracious. and He welcomes the sinner that comes and says, Lord, I'm a mess, please forgive me, please save me. I can't save myself. I come to bow down and worship him and, and ask for forgiveness. So I just want to encourage you tonight to think about the grace of God, because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a single person alive that, that can't say that they've 
sinned against God. But yet his grace covers over every sin for those that come to him. So I pray tonight we would be reminded of just how great our need is as sinners and how great, how wide is the love and the grace of Christ. So we're going to sing a song tonight. The words will be on the screen, which is called Fountain of All Grace. And this song talks about God being the source of grace. We worship him. We say, hallowed be your name, reflecting the the Lord's prayer. May your name be honoured. May your name be glorified. So let's sing together. Oh, the t-
Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of this woman who came to Jesus and came to worship him and showed sorrow for her sin. And Lord, her sins were many. But the Lord Jesus dealt with her so graciously, so kindly. We thank you, Father, that you are in the business of saving lives, of putting right messed up situations, of healing those who are broken, comforting those who mourn. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do this work, even in these days. I pray, Lord, you would help us as your people to understand the depths of the love of Christ and the grace of Christ, that he would forgive sinners. Yes, Lord, we've we've sinned terribly against you in all sorts of ways, more ways than we fully realise. Our very nature is sinful. We were born in sin. Lord, we hurt ourselves, we hurt other people, and most importantly, we hurt you. Against you only have we sinned. Ultimately, it's against you. Father, thank you that there is grace, there is forgiveness. There was a man, the Lord Jesus, who never sinned, who gave his life. He took upon himself the sins of his people, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you. Lord, sometimes we get overwhelmed by our sin. We realise just how weak we are and how wicked our hearts are, even, even now as Christians, how divided they are. But yet, Lord, the more we understand that, the more we understand your grace. Lord Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Help us, Lord, to go in peace. Help us, Lord, to not continue to live in sin because that's not who we are anymore. We've been bought at a price. We pray, Father, that you would change us, change our affections, change our desires, and help us to be holy. Help us to live a life which is worthy of the calling which we have received. Lord, this is a difficult time for many. We miss meeting together. We miss each other. We don't know what's going to happen with government policy. Father, we do pray that you would help us to endure, to continue walking with you. We do pray for our government once again, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. We pray, Father, that you would help none of us to lose our way, to stumble. We pray that your church would continue to do its work, that we wouldn't feel we have to just to stop, but we could still witness for you and proclaim your word and pray and love each other. There's no barrier to doing that. Please bless our service today, we pray. Help us to grow in the grace of God and the knowledge of God. And bless every single person hearing this. And I particularly pray for anybody who's not yet a believer who might have stumbled across us, that they would be blessed by hearing this word, and that you would speak to them. They would hear it not as the words of a man or men, but as the words of God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to read from the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. and We've been working through this book for many months now, certainly before the lockdown began. And we are going to read today from Matthew 26. Let's read from verse 14 to 
25. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for the Passover? Sorry, to eat the Passover. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your home, at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and and began to, to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Let's pray once again. Lord, these are sobering words. This is a difficult chapter. And yet, Lord, it's something we need to learn from. I pray as we we come now to look at this, you would help us to take warning and to take encouragement, to learn lessons. Lord, please, would you speak now as your word is opened? In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, if you can remember that far back, we we learned about a beautiful episode in the life of Jesus. And Chris very helpfully took us through that chapter, that part of the, the gospel. Verses 6 to 13, when Jesus was anointed in Bethany. This could be the same incident that Luke records that I mentioned just a minute ago, but it could be a different incident that could have been too similar Um, such instances in the life of Jesus. But Mary, as it seems, the the brother of Lazarus, anointed Jesus. She had that very expensive jar of perfume. She she opened it, she broke it, and she poured it out on him as, as a kind of offering of praise and worship to him. And this woman, she showed, I think, a beautiful example of the highest kind of human behaviour, the the ability to come and worship God, to worship the Son of God in this case, which is what we were created for. God created us to be worshippers. God created us to to enjoy the beauty and intimacy of worshipping him and putting him in his rightful place. 
and pouring ourselves out in worship to him. And that is what the gospel, the good news, the Christian message of Jesus calls us to, to become worshippers of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and particularly to worship and acknowledge the Son of God. Because, of course, many people, they might believe in God, but they would not bow and worship the Lord Jesus and acknowledge him as the Saviour and as the Son of God, the Divine Son. This beautiful act was an act that was rich in symbolism, and I don't want to just repeat what Chris said, but... In John's gospel, when John talks about this, Jesus said to the people that, that bothered, the disciples who criticized this woman for pouring out this perfume, he said, why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. It was intended that this perfume should be kept for the day of my burial. At the time of Jesus, it was common practice for people to go to embalm a dead body in beautiful spices and ointments and costly perfumes and it could well have been that Mary had been keeping this ointment this spikenard this expensive ointment that cost a year's wages to anoint the body of Jesus after his death but it could it be that Mary this woman out of all the disciples and followers of Jesus she actually took seriously his words prophecy about rising again from the dead could it be that she saw no need for this perfume to be kept to anoint his body because he wouldn't be in the tomb long enough for that to happen could it be a deep act of faith and belief in the lord jesus well we don't know because after the crucifixion and the burial of jesus it seems that the women were quite frightened and perplexed about what was to happen to him and surprised about the resurrection but in any case that pouring out the anointing of the body of Jesus was symbolic of the anointing of his body. The, the idea of that jar being broken, I mean, it's possible that such a jar had to be broken in order to open it. It was designed to be used once, but could it be that Mary just broke this jar in a kind of symbolic act of this, of not holding anything back, but pouring it all out for Jesus? We have this picture, don't we, of this jar being broken, the precious contents flowing out of this jar. And this portrays vividly what was to happen a few days later when the precious Lord Jesus and his, and his body that was anointed so beautifully would be scorned and broken and torn and spat upon and beaten. And how that body was broken on that cross and how his blood poured out of that body like that perfume had flowed out of that broken jar. And that blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in a way, I think Mary's act of devotion, of costly, sacrificial love, was exactly the kind of love the Lord Jesus himself showed on a much greater scale when he died on that cross to save his people from their sins. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what Mary, what this woman has done, will be told in memory of her. We remember Mary. She's gone down in history as a worshipper of the Lord Jesus. But sadly, that was 
that's followed in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, by a terrible act, an ugly act, which is, which is actually the epitome of the worst kind of human behaviour, rather than worship, treachery and betrayal of the Lord Jesus. And sadly, this story is also told throughout the world. Everybody knows about Judas Iscariot. He's, his name is a byword for a traitor, one who turned his back on his Lord. We read, we read today in Matthew 26 that Judas, after this incident with the woman anointing Jesus, when he was among those who criticised her and said this money could have been given, this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor, he criticised her and straight away, after being rebuked by Jesus, it seems, he went to the chief priests. Look at verse 15. and He tried to make this deal with them. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? We saw in verses 4 and 5, the chief priests, the leaders of Israel, were already looking for a sly way in which to arrest Jesus. But they were afraid of the people. Many people held that Jesus was a prophet, if not the Messiah, the, the anointed king of Israel, who, who they believed would come and save his people and deliver the nation. And the chief priests were worried about his influence. They were worried about the powder keg of the city, which was so volatile, packed with pilgrims, 200,000 people, four times the usual population, every corner of the city packed on that most nationalistic of days for the Jewish people, the Passover, the day of deliverance, commemorating God's great act of delivering his nation from Egypt. The city was, you know, it wouldn't have taken much to cause a great uprising, which of course the Romans would have tried to crush and come down on them like a ton of bricks. The chief priests were worried about their own position, their own reputations and they were worried about their, their security of their little system that they got going. They wanted Jesus out of the way, but they wanted to do it in secret so that it would not look bad on them, and not cause problems down the line for them. And so they were delighted when Judas came for a fee, for a price, one of Jesus' own followers offering to betray him and hand him in to them. But of course, the city, as I said, was so packed with people, it would have been look, like looking for a needle in a haystack, looking for Jesus. They couldn't arrest him publicly. They couldn't find him when he melted away into the crowds after a day's teaching. And so they were only too glad when Judas came and offered them his whereabouts, knowledge of his whereabouts. But dear friends, what I want to ask today is this question. Why did Judas do this? What caused one of the 12 disciples, one of those chosen few, to betray his Lord in this way? Many people have speculated about this. And it's impossible to be completely sure, but I think there are some clues in the word of God which will help us. And it's important for us to, to grapple with this because people still betray Jesus today. And they betray him for similar reasons, I believe. So let's look at what I think are the four main reasons why Judas could have betrayed Jesus. Well, the first one is 
The obvious one, really, the love of money, love of material wealth. We're told in John's Gospel that when Judas complained about Mary's lavish act of pouring out that perfume, you know, he said the money could have been spent helping the poor, which is right to do, of course. But he didn't care about the poor. It was a pretense. It was hypocrisy. We're told that he was a thief. He used to carry the the money bag of the disciples. He was a bit like the treasurer. People would donate money to the cause. We know that. The Gospels say that. Different people, particularly women, gave money, which the disciples used to meet their needs, to buy food, and also perhaps to help the poor along the way. But Judas was pilfering that money, helping himself. We don't know what he was spending it on. What a treacherous thing to do. What a dishonest thing to do, to be taking donations from well-meaning people, loving gifts, and then spending it on yourself, depriving your fellow disciples and the Lord Jesus of what was rightfully theirs. But nobody ever suspected Judas. That is the shocking thing about it. Even at the Last Supper, which we read about today, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of them say, it must be Judas. None of them suspect him. He played the game very well. And even Jesus didn't expose him, even though Jesus knew what was going on. Think about this. Judas had heard all Jesus' teaching over the years. They'd been together. He'd been there right from the beginning, we assume. He'd heard Jesus' teaching in many places about the love of money, the danger of wealth, the deception of greed. He'd heard Jesus talking about laying down your life for his sake, taking up your cross and following him. And he'd seen Jesus model this kind of lifestyle. And he'd heard Jesus talking about the fact that no man can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll love that one and hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And Judas was pretending to do just that. He was pretending to be a disciple of Jesus, a trusted man with privilege and responsibility, and yet he really loved money. He didn't love Jesus. In the end, it became clear when there was a choice a real choice to be made, which one he really loved. And it wasn't Jesus. At this point, Jesus was heading for the cross, resolutely, just a few days away. Well, actually, it was actually the next day when this Last Supper took place. Within 24 hours, Jesus would be in the tomb, lifeless corpse. And Judas, he could see this this was the end game for Jesus as he saw it. He saw no future benefit in being his disciple. He probably thought, well, I better cut my losses. And if I make this deal with the priests, then at least I can get some money into the bargain. One final bonus. I won't be able to pilfer money anymore from the money bag because Jesus will be gone. But I can still get my final payoff before I go off and make a new life for myself. Look at verse 15. The high priests come to this agreement with Judas to pay him 30 shekels, 
price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, which can sound a lot to us. But actually, they, they worked out this, this probably was worth about 120 denarii. Denarius was, as I'm told, the common day's wages for a laboring man. So this was about 120 days pay for an ordinary working person of the time, give or take a bit. So Judas, for the price of agreeing to betray Jesus, he was given not a huge sum, not a fortune, but it was, it was a reasonable sum. It was a third of the year's wages, approximately. Think about Judas, who'd been so concerned about that, that jar of ointment, which cost, as he calculated quickly, a year's wages. He was so concerned about that. And yet, when it came to it, he was willing to sell his Lord. Well, actually, he wasn't really his Lord at all. One he claimed as his Lord for much less than that, for just a third of that price. So money was a factor, but I think it's impossible to believe that money was the only factor that motivated Jesus, Judas to betray Jesus. I think another reason which we can deduce from Scripture is that Judas was disillusioned with Jesus. This is the second reason. Disappointment, disillusionment with Jesus. Many people believe that as Jesus moved towards his inevitable death on the cross, as he did nothing to avoid this, as he even in some ways courted, as it seemed, controversy and said the kind of provocative things that would, would inevitably lead to his death, Judas, Judas must have seen that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah, saviour that he wanted to follow. Perhaps not the one that he'd agreed to follow in the beginning. Perhaps he'd had the wrong idea about Jesus all along. We don't know, so we're not really told much. It's quite likely that Judas expected Jesus to be a warrior, a mighty conquering Messiah, who would use his undoubted power to do wondrous signs and miracles to overthrow the Romans and free the nation. And yet, for some strange reason, all he could talk about was dying, suffering. Judas was no doubt perplexed by this and disappointed by this. Why wasn't Jesus rising up? The people would have crowned him king and followed him. Surely this was the day of deliverance, long promised, but no, all he could talk about was the cross. All he could talk about was dying and death. Judas had a worldly, carnal understanding of Jesus. He saw him as just a man. He didn't have a spiritual insight into who Jesus really was and what his purpose was. The other disciples were also confused about this. They were fearful. They didn't understand. But when it came to it, Peter said before, on an earlier occasion, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They couldn't go anywhere else. They stuck with him, even though they didn't understand. But Judas just couldn't follow a Christ like this. Sadly, friends, sometimes people want to follow a particular kind of Jesus. 
when it turns out, when it becomes apparent that he's not the kind of Jesus they want to follow, the true Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus they like, they turn away from him in anger and disgust. And I think another reason we can deduce is that Judas was concerned about self-preservation. So we've had love of money, we've had disillusionment with Jesus, and now we have self-preservation and fear. No doubt Judas could see the writing on the wall. He could see the growing opposition amongst the the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the Jewish people. And he he thought, well, if, if this carries on, and Jesus himself is talking about being killed by his enemies and the whole city knows they want to get him surely if he is put to death we as his 12 closest followers will also be persecuted and lose our lives as well so for Judas it was the ideal time the time had come to align himself with Jesus's enemies to distance himself from Jesus to to resign from being a disciple, to say, no, I'm not following this man anymore. I'm actually with you against this man. I'm not a follower of his any longer. I renounce him. I denounce him. I'm standing on your side against him. He was making a settled choice. He was making a decision, a conscious decision to turn away from Jesus. There will be no way back after this betrayal, and he knew it. Jesus said before, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Judas actually was probably more concerned about saving his own life. And as a result, we know what happened. I want you to notice that Judas, although he had heard the promises of Jesus being killed, He seemed to pay no attention or didn't believe in the promises of Jesus that one day or three days later he would be raised to life. He didn't believe those promises that Jesus, the predictions he made about coming in glory and about his second coming and about the judgment and him judging the nations and about the promises and the privileges and about all the things that Jesus said about himself. Those things just completely washed over him. He didn't believe them. But he did believe in the bit about Jesus being killed. It's important to remember that Judas, he wasn't just a good man who lost his way. Jesus said before in another place, one of you is a devil. Judas was a messed up, wicked, unbelieving, faithless man. He didn't believe the promises of Jesus. He didn't heed his warnings. Jesus talks, he said, I'm I'm going to judge the world and you need to be on the right side of me. And Judas didn't believe that. He paid no attention to that. I think the fourth reason we can discern for Judas' betrayal was that he was resentful and angry that his true self had been exposed. I think the incident with Mary at Bethany, when she anointed Jesus, was the final straw for Judas. It, it had been brewing for a long time. When Jesus rebuked him and the others and criticized him and said, you know, you're completely wrong, actually. This woman has done a beautiful thing. Leave her alone. Stop bothering her. 
It exposed his sinful heart and his sinful attitude. Now, when you're criticised, when when you're challenged and rebuked by the word of God, you can either respond in humility and say, yes, Lord, that's absolutely true. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm not understanding your heart in this matter. Or you can go away completely hardened, bitter and angry about it. I think Judas probably thought, well, you know, this is the final straw. Jesus pointed out his sin, and now he's at the point of betrayal. It was a perfect storm. He was afraid of his life. He saw no future in following Jesus. It was a lost cause as far as he could see. He didn't believe the promises. He was disillusioned with Jesus. It wasn't who he turned out. It didn't turn out who he thought he would be. He was angry at his sin being exposed. And there was a chance to get some money, which he loved, into the bargain. So at that point, you see a man who was a follower of Jesus, who appeared to be a follower of Jesus. You see a man going down a very dark and destructive path, going to make a deal with the chief priests. I think sometimes... At certain points, I felt sorry for Judas. I thought, well, was what he did really any worse than the other 11 disciples? They all ran away from the Lord. They might not have betrayed him, but they all abandoned him. And Peter denied him on that night when when they should have stood by him, suffered with him, perhaps. They all ran away and left him. But I think the difference is that Judas, he made a calculated decision. He slept on it. I mean, he, he decided to do this some, at some point before. He'd considered it. He had time to really settle in his own mind what he wanted to do. And he went through with it. And Judas, rather than just giving in to fear in the heat of the moment, when the pressure was on, he made an effort to visibly, definitely separate himself from Jesus and his cause and align himself, as I said, with the enemies of Jesus. And that's what the problem was. In a sense, it validated, it just just showed what was really in his heart all along. He never was a true believer. He never loved the Lord Jesus. The Lord never had his heart. And in a way, him, him departing from Jesus and going over to his enemies simply show what was going on, what, what, what had already been a reality for a long time, that Jesus, Judas was not one of them, even though he had the appearance of being a disciple. But the horrific thing about Judas is that, as I said, nobody suspected him. He was a great hypocrite. He played the game very, very well. He had a position of trust, which he abused, He publicly represented Jesus. He preached in his name. He served alongside Jesus. He heard all the the teaching. But his house was built on sand. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, you know, if you you build your house on sand, you don't hear and obey the word of God. When the day the storm comes, your house will collapse. It might look like all the others, but it won't stand. And when the storm came, 
the house that Judas had built on the sand, not on the word of God, collapsed completely. We come to the Lord's Supper, so-called, that it's the, the Last Supper, it's the, the Passover. Jesus is meeting with his disciples. We're told in Luke's account of this and John's account that at a certain point, Satan entered Judas. Sounds very dramatic, very severe, and I think it was. Now, at this point, Judas had already decided to betray Jesus. He'd made the deal with the chief priests, but at some point, perhaps during the meal, Satan entered him. Perhaps at that moment, I think Luke talks about when Jesus says, yes, it is you. When John says, you know, Jesus says to him, go and do what you have to do, go and do it quickly. As I said, Judas wasn't a good man that somehow was possessed to do something he didn't want to do by Satan. But at a certain point, Satan entered Judas in a way that he influenced him, that he was no longer, I think, really in control of his actions. He'd got such a dark, got to such a dark place by his compromises, his sins, his choices, that he was now completely at the mercy of the evil one. I think from the conclusion of this, when we see Judas being full of remorse and betraying one he, he knew to be an innocent man, that Judas may have had some fears about going through with this. He knew he was betraying an innocent one. So the devil entered him and gave him that final push to go through with this. In John chapter 6, as I said, Jesus calls Judas. He's one of you is a devil. Then later on in that same book, Jesus said, calls him the son of perdition, the son, the man doomed to destruction, the lost child, as someone has translated it. And Judas was always wicked, but at that point, his choices brought him into that very, very dark place, a bit like King Saul in the Old Testament where he was completely overcome by wickedness and by the power of the evil one. We read later, and we read in the other Gospels, that when Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned, he went to the high priests, the chief priests, and he, he tried to return the money to them, and he felt guilty. And he said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? That's your problem. And this is the reality. This is what Satan did as well, I believe. He used Judas. He tempted him. He used him and then when he'd finished with him, just like the high priest, he tossed him aside like an old rag doll being discarded. You know, I've finished with you. And rather than Judas being rewarded, he, he was left with nothing. He'd lost everything. He was totally ruined. And that's what Satan does. That's what Satan does, dear friends. When he takes, when your life, which is filled with sin, lack of faith, and you keep on making these, these sinful choices to disobey God, eventually you get yourself into a point where you are really almost out of control. When you're still responsible for your sin, but you, you're just kind of influenced by evil to such an extent that it's very hard to get a way back from that position. 
And after that, the devil will toss you and he'll turn you and he'll use you for his purpose and he'll just chuck you away beside the road and leave you just as a ruined mess. And that's why this is so important for us. This is no, nothing to be taken lightly. I want to say something more cheerful to you. And I've often, I've often said this when I've been preaching because I'm very struck by this. Dear friends, the sovereignty of God, the way that God can arrange things to happen so that his will is being fulfilled. And yet he is not the author of sin and wickedness. So what Judas did was an evil thing. It was a sin. You know, he was, he's blameworthy for that. We know the devil, Satan, had a part to play in that. And yet, look at the outcome of this. Where did it lead? Well, it led to a very wicked thing, the Son of God being crucified on that cross, being mocked and rejected. But think what happened as a result of that death. God had planned that. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He, he, he embraced it, even though it was a fearful thing. He went willingly to that place because that was the will of the Father. So somehow, Satan, Judas, wicked men, they were no barrier to God fulfilling his purposes. In fact, God used their sin, despite not being the author of their sin. He used it to get exactly what he wants, what he wanted. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again, and I'll say it to the day I die. The Lord God, that's the, the amazing thing about his sovereign will, is that God could take human sin and rebellion and wickedness, and he can somehow use it in his sovereign purposes to bring about those purposes to a good fulfillment. Not good for those people that engage in this, but good for his people, that his son might be exalted and glorified. I think Satan's behaviour towards Jesus throughout the Gospels has been very erratic and strange. So you, you remember when Jesus was tempted at the start of his ministry, tempted in the wilderness. It, it seems as though the devil was trying to get him to disobey God and sin in some way, because obviously if he'd sinned and been diverted, been diverted from God's plan, he wouldn't have been able to die as a substitute for his people. Of course, Satan failed in that. So on another occasion, when Peter, when Jesus was talking about his death, Peter said, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And on that occasion, it seems that Satan was trying to divert Jesus from the cross once again and tempt him by taking an easier path, a path which would be disobedient to God. And of course, that completely failed as well. But at this point, on the night before Jesus is to go to the cross. It seems that Satan now is stirring up people against him. Could it be that Satan has realised that his, his days are numbered? Because you know, the cross is a, is a big defeat for Satan. It's like a cataclysmic defeat. Does he realise by now that Jesus is resolved to go to the cross? Nothing's going to stop him. So he's going to pour out his fury on Jesus as much as possible to make it as unpleasant as possible. Or does Satan still hope at this late hour to crush Jesus with the, the sorrow of being betrayed by a friend? That he will be so broken that he won't have the courage to go to the cross? Well, we don't know, do we? 
One thing is certain, friends. Although Jesus knew very well that Judas was going to be a traitor, it was no surprise to him. In his humanity, I bet you, I'm convinced that Jesus still felt a great deal of pain in his heart to be betrayed by one who'd reported to be his follower and served in his course. In John 13, it says this, Jesus was troubled in spirit when he talked about the treachery that was about to take place. Jesus is not some kind of robot that doesn't have emotions and feelings. and This is painful for him. We get the sense of this in Psalm 41, verse 9, which is one of the scriptures that Jesus presumably is saying is is fulfilled in the treachery of Judas. Even my close friend, it says, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And again, in Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14, we get the same sense of this betrayal. Some of you know exactly what this is like because you've been betrayed as well by someone, perhaps by husband or a wife, perhaps by a close friend, perhaps by a family member, perhaps by another Christian or professing Christian. That gut-wrenching feeling in the pit of your stomach to know, how could they do this to me after all they've said? Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. For it's not an enemy who insults me, that I could endure. It's not a foe who rises against me. From him I could hide. But it is you, it's you, a man like myself, my companion and close friend. We shared sweet fellowship together. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. Painful thing, isn't it, to be betrayed? Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus, if that's happened to you, or if it does happen to you, that Jesus understands fully what that's like. He's able to sympathise with our weaknesses because he himself experienced this gut-wrenching betrayal. And even though he knew it was coming, it was still a great source of grief for him and sadness. That Judas, could you really bring yourself to do this? Look at verse 24 of Matthew 26. The Son of Man will go just as it is it's written about him, as it's prophesied in the Old Testament in these Psalms and other places. But woe to that man. How unfortunate for that man. How terrible for that man who betrays the Son of Man, the Son of Man being Jesus. It would be better for him if he had never been born or not been born. Why? Friends, Judas was privileged above the vast majority of men. He had the privilege of sitting and eating at a table with the Lord Jesus. One occasion Jesus said, you know, for those those of you who follow me, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. That could have been Judas's if he'd followed the Lord Jesus Immense privilege could have been his in the future kingdom. 
but he ended up taking his own life. He committed suicide, we read a bit later. He hung himself on a tree. That was a curse for the Jewish people. Curse is everyone who's hung on a tree, he says in Deuteronomy. He, he hung himself. He died in a cursed way. And then in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, where we read about his body bursting open. It falls down, it bursts open. All his insides, his intestines spill out. His bowels come out onto the ground. It actually recounts a very sad story that, you know, the money that he, he um, returned to the chief priests before he killed himself, they used to buy a field. In a sense, Judas bought that field. And in that very place, unbeknown to him, where he hanged himself, presumably his body fell down after he hanged himself and split open. And you can imagine in that place the blood and the gore and the mess and the flies and the dogs, presumably licking up the blood just like Queen Jezebel in the book of Kings, that wicked queen was pushed to her death. What a sad ending for an apostle, one of the twelve, who was promised so much and delivered so little. And it's a warning here for any of you, and I pray this is not true for anyone who listens to this, for anyone here that claims to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, that claims to be a follower, but at some point, ends up completely rejecting him, turning away from him, and in a sense, betraying him. You might be the kind of person that sat in church for years and years. You might have served in the church. You might even be a minister of a church, or a pastor, or have some other position, trusted position in the church. You heard the word of God you heard the warnings. What happens to those who turn away? What happens to those that don't believe? You knew all the promises. For the faithful believer in the Lord Jesus, what is promised for us, to us? You, in some sense, took part and shared in the privileges of fellowship with God's people and of the Christian life. You sat down and ate with his people. Perhaps you took the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. And you said that you believed in him. Perhaps you were baptised. You said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm starting a new life. I've been washed clean of my sin. But perhaps, despite all that, you never really loved him. You never really had your heart. Your affections belonged to other things. You actually loved yourself, your sin, more than the Lord Jesus. That you didn't really love him at all. Perhaps like Judas, you knew it was a pretense. When Jesus was at that meal, the last of the supper, and Jesus said to him, Judas said, is it surely not I, Lord? He knew what he was about to do. He knew the deal he'd made to betray Jesus. He was going for a hypocritical pretense. When Jesus, Judas criticised that woman who anointed Jesus, pretended to care about the poor, he didn't care about the poor. He knew he was a thief. He knew it was all a show, a sham pretense. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you know deep within that you're living a double life. You don't really love the Lord Jesus. You don't really believe or perhaps you're just self-deceived. You think you are a believer. 
but actually there's no evidence really of wanting to build your life upon his word. Well, if that's you, and I I pray it's not true of any of us, because it could be true of me, it could be true of any professing Christian, the day will come, as it did with Judas, it will surely come when it no longer becomes convenient to tag along with the people of God. There's no longer any benefit to following Jesus. There was, for Judas, for a time, obviously, he saw it it was attractive to follow Jesus. Perhaps he was attracted to the idea of Jesus, not the reality of Jesus. Perhaps he was attracted to the idea of being able to gain in some way. Perhaps he was even attracted to the privileges he thought would be his when Jesus kicked out the Romans and re-established God's rule in Jerusalem. But when he saw that wasn't going to happen, when he saw the pressure was on, when he saw the danger was growing, there was a risk He had to stick his head above the parapet to be a believer. Then he turned away. Perhaps, I don't know, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, perhaps the time is coming in this country where a sifting will take place in the church. I hope I'm wrong. Perhaps a sifting is what we need. When it will become more difficult to be a Christian. It will involve risk. You won't be able to be a face in the crowd just hanging along with the people of God anymore. You need to make a big and serious decision. Is this real? Do I love the Lord? Am I going to follow him whatever it costs? Or am I going to get out while I can, while I still can? Because a time may come when the pressure will be on. When... It just seems this is a lost cause. The church is going nowhere in this country. The cause of Jesus is is fizzling out and dying and people are just turning against it more and more. Just like with Judas, what's the point in continuing with this? Where is it all going to lead to? I'm going to get out and align myself, myself with the enemies of Jesus and stand alongside them and say, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't belong to this Jesus. I'm with you in an act of betrayal to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but more and more importantly to Christ himself. There will come a time, if this is you, if you are a false believer in the church, in the visible church, who just tags along, there may come a time where you're disillusioned with Jesus, like Judas was. He's not the kind of Jesus you're prepared to follow. You want the fluffy teacher, I mean, Judas himself, he calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. He doesn't call him Lord. There are people in the church, they don't want Jesus to be Lord. They're happy for him to be a kind of good human teacher, a good moral example, even my best friend. They don't want him to be Lord. They get angry and disillusioned with him. Or they get angry when their sin is exposed, when the word of God is preached clearly. They say, I could never follow a Jesus like that. How dare you talk like that? And they feel exposed they get indignant, they turn away. Or perhaps, as I said, you, you stand to lose too much by continuing to follow him and the fear overtakes you and you just want to get out and separate yourself from these Christians. Or perhaps like Judas, there's some kind of material incentive for betraying him. You know, you get some kind of sinful thing, some kind of benefit, something from this world that you love too much, which you want to keep hold of. 
which you won't be able to have if you continue to follow Jesus. So when that day comes, if you are not a true believer, like Judas, you will leave the church, leave the people of God, you will make a considered, definite, irrevocable, means no going back, decision. You come to a settled position, I no longer want to be a Christian. I no longer want to be a disciple. I no longer want to be, have anything to do with that. I want to stand against him. Let me say this as well. This is my conviction. Those that turn away from Christ and betray him will not just turn to non-believers, non-Christians, atheists. It's true that some of those who once, once preached in the church, once served in the church, when they turn away from Christ, they become the biggest opponents of Christianity, the biggest enemies of the gospel. They're so hardened against him. But there will be, will be those who turn away, betray Jesus and still call themselves Christians. They'll follow a false Jesus, a Jesus that is palatable to them, a Jesus that never makes any demands, a Jesus that they can mould into their own image. And there'll be churches full of people like that, which will give them a safe refuge. But dear friends, that's still a betrayal. If you don't believe in the biblical Jesus... You're still betraying him. And if you get into that position, no doubt you'll hate his word and hate those that still hold on to his word and seek to follow him faithfully. Don't let that be you. Now, in case, if if you're a true believer listening to this and you know the weakness of your own heart, you might be saying, well, my goodness, what a terrible thing. I, I've, I've let Jesus down so many times. Has, have I betrayed him to the point of no return? Well, I think the Bible gives us encouragement. We've already mentioned Peter, Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter turned away in the, in the, in the spur of the moment when the heat was on through fear and cowardice. In that, kind of, in that moment, he made the craven decision to deny Jesus. But afterwards, he wept bitterly, just like Judas, actually, but in a different way, because after he turned back, he strengthened his brothers. Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. His heart belonged to Jesus. He loved him. He didn't understand everything, but he would never, ever turn from Jesus. There was nowhere else he could go. He deeply regretted what he'd done. Repented. And it's possible to be a true Christian and to stumble in the heat of the moment, and just to lose your guard, let your guard down, lose your courage, deny him, fall into some sin. But friends, if that's you, and you do love him, there's always a way back. There's forgiveness, there's grace, and there's restoration. And if you turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, I messed this up, I've really messed this up. I've let you down big time. Will you forgive me? Please forgive me. He will forgive you, just as he forgave Peter and restored him and the other disciples who also let him down by running away in his hour of need. So don't think that's you if you're a true Christian. There's hope for you. But let me say this. If you are one of those unconverted people in the church in a church and you've heard those warnings and you've received those promises it's a very very dangerous place to be in if you turn away from the Lord 
that you once professed. You make yourself his enemy. Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 5 talks about this. I want you to read it and take a warning from it. It talks about those who were once enlightened if they fall away. The the impossibility of them being brought back to repentance because they are crucifying the son of God over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I don't believe this is talking about a true believer who has lost his courage or has stumbled. It's talking about someone who has made a conscious decision to turn away from Jesus. says, I'm not a Christian. I don't want anything to do with it. Yet I know there are stories of people coming back from a position like this. And if that's you and you still can turn to him, you should do so straight away and get right with him. But you get to a point, if you're not careful like Judas, where you so harden yourself. It doesn't happen overnight. You get to a point where you just don't want him anymore. You get yourself into such a mess. It will be worse off for you than it was at the beginning. You actually end up worse than you were before, before you even became a Christian. 2 Peter 2 verse 20, read that as well. And that's another warning, a similar warning. Peter says it will be better for people like that to never have known the way of righteousness than for them, for them to turn their backs on it. You can end up more hardened than you were before. Listen, if you turn your back on Jesus, if you betray your Lord, like Judas, there will come a point in the future where you bitterly regret what you've done. You realise you've made a cataclysmic, heinous, terrible mistake. It's, it's an eternity defining mistake it's a mistake that will define your eternity Judas wept bitterly went out and hung himself but he didn't turn to God I believe Judas could have been forgiven I can't prove that but I believe if he had gone to God he would have received forgiveness but he didn't and on that the day of judgment dear friends if you've turned away from Jesus Jesus that that price that you pay to betray him will seem terribly inadequate. Just as Judas returned those, threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. Disgusting. Didn't bring him any pleasure whatsoever. He would have have done anything to turn the clock back. So will you. So will you. If you turn away from your Lord and betray him and harden yourself against him. Make yourself his enemy. Just to conclude, I want to to point this out to you. As a result of Judas' sin, of his actions, it ended up with two very different men hanging on trees. As I said, hanging on a tree was a curse. If you were hung on a tree, it was a symbol of being cursed. Judas hung himself, took his own life. Jesus also, in a sense, hung on a tree. On that cross. There's a world of difference between these two men. Judas, he hung on a tree as a result of his own guilt and his shame of what he'd done. Jesus willingly, willingly gave up his life. It wasn't a suicide, he gave up his life. He allowed himself to be killed, even though he was innocent, completely innocent, for the sins of his people. Jesus died to save others. Judas ruined himself. 
One of these men, Judas, hung on a tree because of his cowardice, his treachery, his love of self. The other man, Jesus, hung on a tree for the complete opposite reasons. Because of selflessness, faithfulness, courage and love. One of these men, Judas, hung on a tree and his, his body split open when he fell and his blood and his guts poured out all over the ground as a judgment for his wickedness. And the other man, Jesus, hung on that tree, on that cross, and he poured out his blood for the life of the world. One of these men hung on a tree, Judas. The prophet from his sin brought him ruin and destruction. The other man, Jesus, hung on a tree and his righteousness brought him a place of honour at the right hand of God the Father and gave him the knee which is above every knee, every knee so the name which is above every, knee, every name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. One man, Judas, hung on a tree and it resulted in perdition, damnation, lostness, shame, and a curse. Another man, Jesus, hung on a tree. He was cursed not for his own sin, but he was cursed, cut off from God for the sake of his people, for you and me. And the end result was not damnation and destruction and shame, but was glory and honour for him and salvation of his people. question we could all ask, on that day of judgment, will we be found in Christ, in a sense, having been crucified with him, you know, accepting that sacrifice, and in a sense, that sacrifice, well, not in a sense, in, in reality, that sacrifice paying for us, taking away our guilt and shame. Will, will we be found in Christ through faith in him on that day? Or will we, like Judas, go to the place where we belong? That's what Peter says about him in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. He said, Judas left to go to the place where he belongs. I know I haven't analysed this passage in great detail tonight. I wanted to focus on Judas, but when the disciples ask, in verse 25, well, sorry, which verse is it? Verse 22, surely not I, Lord. They were incredulous. They couldn't believe. They were saddened. It could be one of them. We don't need to sit here as Christians and be, be petrified that we will betray Jesus, but we do need to be careful. And it's a good question to ask because we know ourselves, don't we, to some extent. It's not surely not I, Lord. Actually, no, Lord, I know that's very likely, knowing myself, I'm very likely to betray you because of the weakness and the wickedness that's still in me. But unlike Judas, who just ruined himself through his decisions, we go to God for help and grace in our time of need. In fact, we go to the Lord Jesus himself. Here's a prayer that we could pray. Lord, you know, you know my weakness. You know my sinful heart. Help me, help us not to betray the Lord Jesus for anything in this world. Will you hold us fast and keep us in the palm of your hand 
Help us, Lord, not to turn away for the love of money, for the love of saving our lives. Help us, Lord, to continue to walk that path until you call us home. We can pray with the words of the psalmist. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep us. I really trust for better things in your case, dear friends, that you will persevere, that God will keep you, hold you, and that you will be true worshippers and followers of the Lord Jesus. Please think about Judas. Learn from his example. and Don't let that be you. I'm going to sing our final song. The words will be on the screen, which is, I think is a song which, which really reflects this kind of idea of pouring out our hearts, like the woman, like Mary, pouring out her worship to the Lord Jesus, her devotion to him, saying, Lord, just make me clean. I know I'm a sinner. I know my heart is fickle, but Lord, I worship you. I'm, I'm broken and contrite before you. I need you to forgive me and give me your grace, and he will. Let's sing this together, then we'll finish. Thank you for your company this evening.